we have been doing a um, series on the parables, and uh, we're continuing with a very famous parable, possibly the most famous. Let me read Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 1 to you. This is the parable of the sower. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Have we got all of this? Yes, we do. Good. Uh, the twelve were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town to town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop, a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. His disciples asked what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy, and when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. They weren't there. You're just listening to me. Oh, okay. Um, well, there we go. Anyway, uh, you probably know the story. So anyway, last week I spoke on another parable, the parable of the unjust judge. Um, it was excellent, by the way, really good. Uh, it included this uh, great analogy about a sausage. Unfortunately, though, the uh, recording didn't work, so it's not on the podcast, so you're just going to have to take my word for it. But anyway, in that excellent sermon, now lost to the ether, um, what I mentioned is that often these parables, partly because of the individualistic, self-related culture that we inhabit, partly because of the way they've probably been misapplied or mistaught. We tend to make them about ourselves. But this is a mistake. But we do. We want to know, how do I learn something from here? Who am I in this parable? What about me? Because, of course, me and me and also me. That's what we tend to do. Well, how Jesus' parables apply to us personally is obviously very important. And we will come on to that. But we need to be wary of kind of rushing ahead to something and actually missing the more fundamental points that are being made. So commonly, this parable, the parable of the sower, people have taught it as kind of, and have heard it as kind of being Jesus' warning to you about don't be those three types of soil. Don't let the devil take God's word from you. Don't be shallow in your faith. 
don't be distracted by the cares of this world because that will be bad for you. Now, whilst there is some truth in that, that isn't actually really the focus of the thing at all. Jesus' parables are not fables with a little moralistic ending to them. They are not like, hey, don't fly too close to the sun with your wings. They are not be like the tortoise rather than the hare. They are actually illustrations. They are depictions of what God's kingdom is like and what life is like in it. Now, parables were like the standard means by which Jewish rabbis taught, and so Jesus is using a familiar method. But what he is doing is he is subverting all of these things so that the people listening to them are expecting something, but then he says something slightly different. And usually it's about, because it's all about me. It's all about Jesus. So, we need to understand that context in order to see what Jesus is really going on about. For a start... This parable is not about four different types of soil. The pathy, the rocky, the weedy, and the goody, which are like, um, what are they called, dwarfs? The seven dwarfs, these are the four paths. Okay, It's not about that, though. It's actually a contrast between two different types of soil. Good soil, bad soil. That which produces an abundance, and that which doesn't. So Jesus does elaborate on the bad soil, kind of fleshing it out with three different examples of what bad soil might be like, but the whole point is, it's just not good. And so it's also wrong to give uh, the same emphasis to all four different types of soil. And again, the elaboration on the three types of soil does kind of confuse the point, but really the emphasis is squarely on bad versus good soil. And in Mark's account of this, parable, he makes the point by using the singular when he's referring to the first two, first three. So it's like uh, he scattered one seed on the path, one seed in the rock, one seed amongst the thorns, and then literally all the other lots and lots of seeds in the good soil. The picture in the mind of Jesus' audience would have been of a huge field with the sower scattering it liberally, where 95% of the seed is landing in the middle, in the good soil, and those around the edges where there are paths and thorns and rockiness is landing there. So the contrast is binary. Good soil, bad soil. And Jesus' point is simple, very simple. This is how things are. The kingdom of God is entirely related and focused on me and my message, the seed. Some people are going to receive me. They're going to be like the good soil. Others are, for various reasons, just not. Consider what has happened up until now in the narrative. Relatively recently, Jesus has made this dramatic entrance onto the scene. He's then proclaimed his messiahship in the synagogue in Nazareth. He's then driven out an evil spirit. He's healed many. He's called his first disciples. He's healed a man with leprosy. He's forgiven and healed a paralyzed man. He's eaten with sinners. He's proclaimed himself Lord of the Sabbath. He's taught about how we should love our enemies and not judge others. He's healed a centurion servant. And then he's raised a widow's son from the freaking dead. 
That's what he's been doing, you know, just all the normal Jesus stuff. And now, verse 4, large crowds are following him. And it's to those crowds, and particularly to his closest disciples, who have seen all of this stuff going on firsthand, it looks very much like Jesus really is who he says he is. He is exactly what they and all of Israel have been looking forward to. He's exactly what the whole world needs. He looks exactly like the Messiah, the long-awaited one. He is the one. And look, it's amazing. The sick are healed. The dead are raised. This is extraordinary. This is wonderful. Utterly wonderful. And chapter 5, verse 26 is kind of a snapshot of all of this. It says this. Everyone was amazed. And they gave praise to God. They were filled with awe. And they said, we have seen remarkable things this day. All quite wonderful. And yet, there is a contrasting response to Jesus, to all this amazingness. As early as Jesus' very first public expression of himself, the people of Nazareth take him, drive him out of the town, bring him to the edge of a cliff, which they want to pull it, push him off so that they can kill him. And then the Pharisees start accusing him of blasphemy. And then they start to shame him because he's uh, eating with sinners. And then they've become furious with him and, becoming, uh, and then begun to want to um, plot about what they're going to do to him. All this despite the awe-inspiring amazingness of what he's been doing. And so, it is in this context that the question on the lips of Jesus' followers and disciples is this. Why? Why, when everything you're doing is amazing, when everything you're teaching is amazing, when the way you are behaving, Jesus, is amazing, when you are clearly amazing, do some people not want you and everything you're promising? What on earth is wrong with them? And it's to that specific question that Jesus tells the parable of the sower as an answer. And in short, the answer is this. The world is broken. Evil exists. People are broken too. And so to some people, even though they've seen it all, even though they've heard it all, they don't really want to go after it. And they're going to choose something else. So the quotation in verse 10 is from the prophet Isaiah, written 700 years earlier. Isaiah was God's spokesperson, but he was rejected by Israel. They saw him, but they didn't accept him. They heard him, but they didn't understand him. And so by quoting this, Jesus is saying two things. One, what happened to Isaiah is happening to me. But two, because Isaiah is not just talking about himself, he's also talking about the coming Messiah. Jesus is saying, in the, I am also the coming Messiah. He's already predicted it. Of course it was going to happen. This was what prophet was prophesied before. So, disciples, don't be surprised. Quite soon after I joined our previous church in London, St. Mary's, this guy um, started coming to church who'd been at my school. I hadn't really known him at my school at all, um, but I knew enough of him to know that he was um, successful, he was very good looking, 
he was um, posh and rich and he'd been on all the sports teams and he was just, you know, your archetypal blue-eyed perfect little boy. And what was strange was he was definitely not a Christian. He was the sort of person who would never really darken the doors of a church and yet he was there. I found it very odd. And I remember going, well, what are you doing here? Are you looking for somewhere else? Uh, but he was there. And what was even stranger was from the very first moment he turned up, he lapped the whole thing up. He could not get enough of it. He loved the worship. He loved the talks. And most extraordinarily, every time that we would pray for people at the front, he was there being prayed for at the front and having these very powerful experiences of God, of his Holy Spirit, right there at the front. It was extraordinary. And he would come week after week. At the time, I found it like this is an incredible endorsement of the power of God to meet anyone, anywhere. Because this is the kind of guy who should not become a Christian. But there he was. And yet, after a few weeks, I remember talking to him and he said, I never thought any of this was true. I really believe it's true. I have seen this extraordinary stuff happening. But do you know what? I don't want it. Not anymore. I want to go and live my other, the rest of my life. Maybe I'll come back to it later. I found it extraordinary. It was confusing, such a shame. I felt sad about it. I didn't really know what to do. But he'd gone. I've never seen him since. I still don't really understand that. But I do want to come back to that point in a minute. Jesus' point, though, to that is this. Don't be surprised. For various reasons, both spiritual and human, some people will choose something else. So, does this mean, therefore, that everything in life is predetermined, preordained, and fixed? Some people are just bad soil, and they will just never receive, and therefore never experience the goodness of the kingdom of God. Absolutely 100% no. Throughout Scripture, two very clear pictures emerge. On the one hand, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign over the universe. On the other, humanity is free, completely free. God does not always get what he wants, and life is in a state of flux. And this tension exists throughout the biblical narrative. And so to the question... Does God operate outside time or inside time? The Bible's answer is yes. To the question, are we free or is everything fixed? The Bible's answer is yes. Is orange chicken sour or sweet? Yes. I'm pretty sure the Bible doesn't talk about that. But we don't do well with the tension. And I know some people will have been raised with a version of this. Let's call it a caricature of Calvinism that is pretty extreme. At its most extreme, at its most kind of um, crude, the version goes something like this. Before the beginning of the world, God already predestined exactly what was happening in the world, and everything is and always has been exactly how he planned it. Now, leaving aside the sort of God that would make him for a second. It has meant that some Christians can believe that everything happens for a reason. Oh, it all happens for a reason. 
All suffering is part of God's plan. In fact, he actually likes it and wants it for us because then he can teach us important lessons through it. Cancer and earthquakes, yep, all part of the plan. And in the context of this parable, some people entirely without any say in the matter whatsoever have been predestined to reject and never enjoy the kingdom of God. Can I say, if you've been brought up with this, I would leave it in your seat now, never to pick it up again. Because you can only have that understanding of the Christian faith by ignoring huge swathes of the biblical narrative. For a start, if God likes suffering so much, why did Jesus spend so much of his time taking it away? His very manifesto is, I've come to bring sight to the blind, to see the lame walk, to release those who are oppressed, and to preach God's favor to everyone. He heals some people without them even asking for it. He heals some people without them showing any sort of faith at all. Why? Because that's what he's like. That's what he's come to do. He just loves it. Because grace, his grace, plays by no rules whatsoever. You try and hold it down and it will go somewhere else. Because that's the sort of God he's like. That's how much he despises suffering and pain and death in all its ways. Secondly, taken as a whole, the overarching narrative of the Bible is clear. Something catastrophically bad has happened to the universe. But God, from the very beginning, has been actively working to restore it. And to fulfill that purpose, in Abraham, God chooses a person. In Israel, God chooses a nation. And then in Jesus, God chooses the whole universe, the whole world, and everyone in it. Everyone who's ever lived, everyone who is alive now, anyone who is going to live, Jesus has chosen them all. Every single one. That's what he came to do. And this is God's overarching plan for the world. And this is why in the parable, the farmer scatters his seed far and wide, liberally and recklessly. It may be wasteful, but he doesn't care. It's going everywhere. And of course some of it's going to land on the path. Of course some of it's going to land amongst the weeds. Of course it's going to land amongst the shallow, rocky soil because he's flinging it about everywhere because he wants it for everyone. In Jesus, God chooses everyone, but that does not mean that everyone needs to choose him. As our experience of life and the parable make clear. But this does not mean that God is not coming after everyone again and again and again. As that song, which I'm not sure about, Oh, the reckless love of... That one. I'm not sure about that song. I just can't decide. I know people love it. But he keeps coming. He keeps coming over and over again. It's the kicking down doors and walls thing. I just I can't get on board with that imagery. But he's coming. He's coming for you over and over and over and over and over again. He's coming for everyone. And he won't stop.
that yes, there's bad soil, but he doesn't want it to stay like that. Verse 4, after he told the parable, Jesus calls out anyone, anyone who's got ears to hear, let them listen. Anyone in this room now, hear the message of Jesus. He's coming for you. He is bringing his kingdom for you right now. And let me tell you what it looks like. Verse 8, still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop, a hundred times more than was sown. Now, a yield that big is not impossible, but it is extraordinary. And what Jesus is saying is it's coming and it's going to be abundant. Huge, life-giving, totally out of our realm of understanding. Huge, extraordinary abundance of goodness and life. It's his goodness and mercy, his love and justice, his healing and supernatural power experienced for ourselves, but also pouring out onto all those who would come into contact with us. The seed on the good soil, verse 15, stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. That is you, if you'd like it to be. To be the good soil. And to do that is simply to receive the message of the kingdom once and over and over again and let it germinate in your heart to create this beauty, this amazing, life-changing, supernatural, powerful abundance of life. What I've been struck by this week, this hasn't been a very easy week for Hannah and I. I won't go into the details. It's not been very easy. But what I've been struck by this week is the love and care, but also the faith and godly kingdom determination of very many people in this room, people who know us back in London, who have sent us messages, who've said they're praying for us. And what it has done, let me tell you, whether you know it or not, it has made us feel like we're not alone. It's made us feel like we are bigger, we are part of something much bigger. And what it has made us feel like is that God is great and God is good and he is bringing together his people to bring his kingdom to this place, to this city. So thank you. It's meant a huge amount. This is what Jesus is talking about, about his seed, about his goodness. This is what he's talking about, about his mission. It's to pour it into all of us. And when church is really working well, it's doing that all the time in lots of different areas, all the time. As we heard earlier, the people on the street that we see that need love, that's, it's happening there. It's happening amongst us here. It's happening to people who we know and we love, the people we work with. It's happening because it can't stop. It's flowing out of us. What we've seen so far at Bread, and we've been here for not very long, but what we've seen so far at Bread is the tip of the iceberg. It's the tip of the iceberg. And so to those of you who have been patiently persevering, waiting and praying for God's kingdom to come, 
to those who've been asking for more, I need to see more, I need to see more, to those who have been clinging onto their faith with their fingertips, being buffeted about by the world and all its problems, to all of us, Jesus says this, I will produce in you all a crop, a hundred times more than was sown. Christianity is not particularly optimistic about the state of the world. But it is entirely optimistic about the state of God's kingdom. It is glorious. It will last forever. It is here already, and it is going to change the world. So let's be part of it. So what of my friend from school who came to church a bit and countless other people? The short answer is I don't really know. As you may know, Hannah and I were raised in a Christian home. But uh, both of us at various points were like, I don't want anything to do with it. I want to get as far away from it as possible. What brought us back was an expression of the gospel and an experience of the church that was so unapologetically, unadulteratedly Jesus-focused that it didn't have any of the other trappings, any of the politics or the morals or the whatever that was trying to get away from the Jesus thing. It was just the Jesus thing in full power in full grace and intelligence and free from the stink of religiosity, the kind of authentic, fully believed, fully explored and fully expressed version of the kingdom that despite everything, we couldn't say no. It was just too appealing. It was like Jesus was right there. When messengers, come, sorry, when messengers come from John the Baptist to ask Jesus whether he is the Messiah, this is Jesus' reply. Go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. This is what we want to do and this is why we came to plant this church. Now, of course, no church is, in, is perfect. That church in London is not perfect. This church is not perfect. But it's what we're aiming for. And Jesus' parable to you right now is not just you can receive the kingdom. Although it is. It's not just that. It's also you can be like the sower, dispensing the kingdom everywhere. So, would you like to be part of the most extraordinary, exciting adventure in the whole world? Would you like to get back on the horse if you've fallen off it? Would you like him to again pour his goodness into you so that it flows out and affects all the people around you? Because this is what we're going to try and do here as part of this church. We're going after all the people who've been ignored, 
all the orphans, all the prodigals, all the people who have been hurt by church. We're going after the lost and the least. We're going after the ones who everyone else has said, no, you can't be part of this. We're going after all of them because that's what Jesus is like. That's what he wants to do, to bring his kingdom to the people who have been left behind. So do you want to be part of it? Two things you need. One, to pray. As I said last week, prayer is is vital. Let's not be naive. There's a spiritual battle going on. And when we pray, we are winning the kingdom for him. He loves it when we pray. He wants us to pray. And the best prayer we can ever pray is your kingdom come. Your kingdom, not mine. Your kingdom, because your kingdom is so much better. And secondly, we need to realize that it's not really down to us. We turn up, but he's the one with the power. Um, I have a little Bible thing each um, morning that I read. You can share in it with me this morning. It's basically different verses from different parts of the Bible. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. The joy of the Lord is your strength. This is what the Lord Almighty says. You who now hear these words spoken by the prophets, let your hands be strong. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those who have fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have. If God is for us, who can be against us? Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Prayer is not the only weapon. The message of the kingdom is. So receive it all. Be empowered by the spirit of the living God and see yourself affect everyone for his glory. It's what he's come to do. Good. Amen.